The Institute of Art and Ideas is excited to announce Closer to Truth as an official partner for our upcoming How the Light Gets In Festival at Hey on Why, happening this year, May 24th to 27th. Closer to Truth examines humanity's deepest questions with the world's greatest thinkers, from Nobel laureates and renowned scientists to theologians and best-selling authors. For 20 years, Closer to Truth has explored the deep questions of cosmos, consciousness, and meaning. This year, host Robert Lawrence Kuhn journeys to new depths with their philosophy of biology season, exploring topics like evolution, race, alien intelligences, sex and gender, and much more. Get early access to full episodes from this brand new season by registering for a free membership at their website, closertotruth.com. Discover the fundamental issues of existence, engage new and diverse ways of thinking, and seek out your own answers with Closer to Truth. The Institute of Art and Ideas, articles, videos, and podcasts. Hello and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times podcast that brings you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. Is it possible to tell the truth? Or is it time to accept that lying has a central role in all social discourse? On today's episode, The Times journalist David Aranovich, author of Freedom in the Age of Alternative Facts, Santiago Zabala, and philosophy of the mind specialist, Ursa Wickforce, lock horns over whether telling the truth still matters at all. And one thing that's going on now, and that's very much part of the sort of right-wing populist strategy, is to make factual disagreements into value disagreements. To give the uh, feeling that, well, if you accept those facts, you're not with us, you're with them. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a review, join the conversation on Facebook and Twitter, and head over to our website, iai.tv. Back now to our host for this week's debate, Isabel Hilton. Now, we all think lying is wrong, but at the same time, we often lie ourselves to make ourselves look good or to avoid an embarrassment or to avoid hurting others. In fact, we seem to lie pretty routinely. A 2002 study found that 60% of us lie on average three times in a 10-minute conversation. So is it time to accept that lying has a central role in all social discourse, in which case should we stop pretending that it's inexcusable for politicians to lie and accept that spin is part of their job? Might deceit even be a key to the uh, success of our species? Or is the prevalence of lies a sign of a society in disrepair and decline, undermining trust and meaning, in which case Shouldn't we do all we can to reverse this malign practice? Well, to discuss uh, these weighty topics, we have a very distinguished panel. Asa Vikfors is a professor of theoretical philosophy and a member of the Swedish Academy. She published her book, Alternative Facts, in 2017, which builds on her innovative work in the intersectional space between philosophy of mind, language and epistemology. Santiago Sabala is a cultural critic and a professor of philosophy at the Pompeu Fabra University in Barcelona. His many publications discuss philosophy, communism, religion, freedom and art in contemporary society. David Aranovich is an author, journalist and presenter. He now writes regularly for The Times and he's a past winner of the Orwell Prize for political journalism. Now, I'm going to ask each of our three panellists to uh, kick us off with their take on the basic opening question, which is, are lies an acceptable part 
of social discourse. And I'm going to begin by asking Ursa to start us off. Well, short answer is no. Now, of course, lies are an acceptable part of private discourse because we do we, we do tell these white lies and uh, to not to hurt other people and so on, and that's perfectly fine. And we're talking social discourse and in particular political discourse. We are talking about democratic debate, uh, and we I think it comes with certain types of responsibilities because public discourse is so central to to democracy and to the functioning of democracy. Um, now, of course, we have to be clear what lies are and what they're not. Lying is, uh, at a minimum, to say what you believe to be false. You might also think that it has to be false. That's debatable. But it's something you believe to be false. And most philosophers would also include that lying involves the intention to deceive. Now, those are both things that are harmful to public discourse. Saying what you believe to be false, uh, as one philosopher has noted, that it it involves a kind of double deception. You deceive your audience thinking that you believe this, but you also get them to have a false belief about the world. And both of those, those things are very problematic. Um, there's also the intention to deceive, which is problematic in public discourse. Now, lying is slightly different from spin because spin can involve saying a lot of true things because spin is often about selecting the facts that fit your particular narrative. That's slightly different. But there's often typically an intention to deceive there too. There's the intention to get the audience to believe what's false about the world by making a skewed selection of facts. So I think that's all equally problematic in public discourse. Um, now, uh, Interesting research recently shows that one of the shifts that we've experienced the last few years is a lot of talk about post-truth, which is a weird concept because, of course, truth is there whether we like it or not. Uh, but it has something to do with our relationship with truth. And one definition one can give a post-truth is precisely that it is a society where increasingly we, as citizens, accept that politicians lie. Uh, and one type of acceptance that's going on is that, all right, so you, they've done experiments, for example, in an interesting paper, um, t looking at lies that Trump told and that Sanders told, and then asking voters how, uh, when they're told that these are not true statements, uh, how that affects their evaluation of the candidates. And it doesn't affect their evaluation of the candidates at all. <laughs> right. So they say, all right, it's a lie, but he's my liar. And this is a kind of this, uh, he's my liar, they're lying for us. Psychologists call it blue lies, lying for the group. That's a mechanism, that's a tool in the, in the, in the polarization process that's going on now. Lying for your own group is uh, acceptable. And it is, I think, extremely harmful and destructive to public discourse because it drives this thing which is called fact resistance uh, or knowledge resistance, which is involved in a situation where you get polarization, ideological, emotional polarization in society, so that each group affects, uh, accepts a different set of facts than the other group. And that's part of this sort of uh, tribal thinking. And that's connected to this sort of public lying that that's become increasingly uh, common um, uh, and increasingly acceptable uh, among the public. So I think I'm going to stop there. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Asa. So, um, yeah, I think I'm going to go straight on uh, to Santiago with the same question. Santiago, do you think lies are an acceptable part of social discourse? Um, well, um, I'm afraid they are. Uh, I'm afraid they are, and we really can't do much about it um, in the sense that 
Well, I come from a slightly different philosophical tradition um, uh, where, well, we believe that uh, truths and facts are really a result of interpretation. In other words, uh, the truth we have or whatever we want to understand by truth is not so much something objective that we can in some way find uh, a correspondence between subject and object or mind and, and, uh, and object. Uh, it's rather something that actually takes place uh, in the community or perhaps even in the community of, um, of interpreters. Uh, very recently, Bruno Latour has a new book, uh, it's called, I think, Down to Earth in English, and he actually points out how uh, the problem we have today in politics in general, in particular referring to Donald Trump, is that, well, facts or truth by itself does not, does not stand. Uh, it's, it just doesn't work. Uh, in order for, for truth to be true, or even for facts to actually work, uh, for, in other words, for them to have a respect, well, we need institutions, we need uh, academics, we need a whole, a whole amount of um, what we used to call traditional vectors of uh, communication, newspapers, for example. So uh, my, my issue as a hermeneutic philosopher, that tradition of philosophy that I try to um, practice is that, well, facts and truths are really a consequence of interpretation. Therefore, and now to answer more or less your question, um, I remember we were all, and I hope we still are, all appalled at Bush and Blair that lied about the weapons of mass destruction, right? I don't think anybody were all appalled about, about that. But let's imagine that instead they were, they were lying set for a noble cause, for example, trying to find a, a cheaper way to, to fight AIDS. Would we have been also appalled that they were lying for such good intentions? Uh, or even today, we would be appalled if someone would find a vaccine uh, for the coronavirus just by trying to find some light just to get to manage to find this vaccine, we would probably wouldn't be. So uh, I think that our interpretation and even more, perhaps the intention behind that politician are actually more important than the truth in itself or whether he's lying or not. So it is more a matter for me of trying to find the, the consequences of, uh, of that truth. This is why I think, as Richard Rorty reminded us many times, uh, philosophy is a very good um, servant of politics, but a very bad master of politics. So for you, it's more about intention. Acceptability is more about intention. If the issue is that politicians lie, well, I, I am more concerned of what their intention for that lie was, rather than whether it's true or not. Again, if a politician now lies to me, and because and through that lie, he managed to produce a vaccine for the coronavirus, I will take that lie. I will accept it. David, is it damaging to social discourse uh, to lie? I think by and large, I think it's fair to describe lying to somebody else with the intention to deceive as theft. You're uh, stealing reality uh, away from them and their own kind of connection with reality. Um, it's not surprising coming from the kind of great empirical tradition that I do that I have a problem with Santiago's notion that truth is quite so um, uh, open to interpretation. Though I can obviously see uh, what he's uh, talking about there in that everything that we construct in a sense is, uh, it could be constructed differently. But I don't think many of us have much doubt that if, for instance, we've conducted an adulterous affair with somebody else and we tell our partner that we haven't, that is under almost 
any circumstances to be regarded as a lie and not purely a matter of interpretation. Now, if you're Newt Gingrich or Bill Clinton, you might conceivably say that if it only involved oral sex, then in that case it wasn't proper adultery. But I think most of us can say that this isn't just straightforwardly a matter of interpretation, that the lie is designed... I mean, in the case of Bill Clinton, if he's lying to Hillary Clinton, then in that case he's trying to deprive her of a reality that she needs to know about. If he's telling an interviewer that he didn't commit adultery, then he's quite conceivably saying to somebody, in effect, that's none of your business. And actually, that's not an area that's open to you. And I don't have a responsibility towards you to tell you the truth. You're not deprived of anything in particular that is valuable when I don't tell you the truth. But by and large, where a lying is undertaken with the intention to deprive people of the truth, even even in the case of developing a vaccine, then in that case, it is actually uh, in some way dangerous and potentially very dangerous. It's an irony to me that I actually don't accept the example, the example that Santiago gave, because I don't believe that Tony Blair did lie about weapons of mass destruction. Because, but at Santiago, that's a very long discussion, and those of us who studied it carefully, etc., can be very boring about it, and it's not for now. Uh, but it was an interesting example, because actually that was an area where you might argue if you look deep down into the facts that you're in to a question of interpretation. Um, and so I am increasingly worried. I'm very worried about people's willingness to accept lying if it's, firstly, if it's their side that's doing it. Uh, but what they do is something that's much more slippery than that. They bend themselves towards the new truth without, I mean, there are some studies that say they're not bothered by the line, but what they, but, but what they really tend to mean is, I don't really think these lies are quite so bad and so on. But the other thing which is generally true, I think, is a kind of observation about how human beings that I have encountered mostly are, is that we do actually anticipate, by and large, day in, day out, that people will tell us the truth. They won't tell us blatant lies. We don't answer. That's why scammers work at the level that they do. That's why the most overt liars uh, are extremely discombobulating characters, because we don't anticipate that anybody will actually behave like that. Partially because we're, maybe because we're afraid to behave like that ourselves, but maybe because we actually genuinely do hold, on the whole, to a series of uh, quasi-moral values that say that to do this is in some sense wrong, that we let ourselves down. At the point where we have to bend reality to get our way, then to that extent, we're doing not just a violence to the person who we're, we're doing it to, but in some kind of small way to ourselves. And I, I don't think there are many adulterers who don't kind of secretly believe that. So given that, you know, we've accepted that uh, there is a certain amount of uh, manoeuvring, shall we say, uh, of, of the truth in, in, in social intercourse in our, in our daily lives, is it, is it really possible us uh, to tell the truth you know we 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 are compromised in so many ways is telling the truth uh, really a possible way to live well of course <laughs> i mean uh most most of the time we do that it's just mostly so trivial right so if you're asking me is it possible in daily life to say what you believe is true 
yes, we do that all the time. Uh, we, it may be that we lie more often than you'd think if you really count the number of statement, statements in a day. I think a lot of that research is flawed because it includes too many things in the concept of lying, actually. But anyhow, yes, of course it's possible to tell the truth. We have beliefs, and many of our beliefs are well-grounded and true. That is to say, they constitute knowledge, and we use language to transfer knowledge from individual to individual, and that's how society functions. It can be trivial things like, where is the milk? I put the milk on the sink. I have now managed to say something that is true and to transfer that piece of knowledge to my husband and he can have his milk and his coffee. So this goes on all of the time and this is what makes human cooperation and interaction uh, possible in the small and in the, at large in society. That's absolutely key for human survival. But Santiago, you, you were arguing previously that, that the truth was in a sense unknowable, or at least it was uh, more on the kind of spectrum of belief rather than subjective rather than objective. So is that does that mean that you would not consider it possible to tell anything that could be described as the truth without it being challenged simply, you know, for the sake of for, for, as, as truth? Oh, no, I wouldn't go that far. Um, actually, uh, if I ha that I have a library behind me, I assure you that it's true and we can all agree on that. Uh, but that statement, it, it's very poor. I mean, where are we going to go ahead with that statement? Uh, if I tell you, well, this is a very beautiful library, well, maybe some of your interpretations might, might turn. Or, and if I tell you which books I actually have, you might say, well, you shouldn't read those. So uh, truth is really a consequence of... Um, of our interpretation. I think it's important to, um, uh, a true statement, for example, that the library is back here, it's, it's also true because you, you agree with me in some way that it's true. Uh, and this agreement is really what is, very, what is the most important thing, I think, to talk about truth. That's why if, if we take care of things like, for example, freedom, democracy, ethics, truth will come on in itself. It's something secondary. We don't, it shouldn't be our first uh, issue. Uh, I think this is very important also to defend ourselves because it seemed maybe from my intervention before that uh, I don't mind that people lie to us and it shouldn't, we shouldn't be bothered by it. No, of course we should be bothered by it. And the fact that we can be bothered by it, it's also a way we have to defend ourselves against lies. Uh, this is something very important because if I, if there is no way that I can defend myself against someone telling me, for example, Plato grabbing the slave from the cave and showing them the light. Well, some slaves do not want to see, perhaps are not persuaded by that light, or uh, many, many Iraqi do not want to see the sort of democracy that we impose on them. So it is very important that we have that flexibility there in order to defend ourselves also when we do not think that that's the truth. So there are different levels, of course, of truth. So the, the poor level, the poor aesthetical level that I have a library behind me, I think we all agree with that. And the thing is that that, that uh, theoretical uh, apparatus that we use that in the history of philosophy have been called in many different ways, well, it's very difficult to apply when we talk about the good, the beautiful, uh, the right and wrong. But those, uh, are there, values, those are values which, which I think everyone would agree are subject to interpretation and, yes. and objective things. The, the, I think that the, the, the charge against postmodernism, if you like, is that it has removed the sense that there was a kind of platform of truth that could be the foundation of our behavior and our discourse. Postmodernism is not a theory that discredits truth. 
on the contrary, postmodernism is a, it's a theory that tries to point out that truth, it, it's not lying out there. In order for truth to work, for facts to work, you have to give argument. You have to give. That's why a lot of people have so many problems with, for example, alternative facts or even Trump lies, because there are no arguments there. If you look at the way he talks, basically through Twitter, there are very few arguments there. So postmodernism is, unfortunately, postmodernism has a very bad reputation now because of this sort of new return to re order that has been going on since 9-11. So in other words, a big global frame order, the fact that we're all talking here, it's a clear example of that. Um, so there's an intensification from a technological point of view of reducing reality to one single, uh, one single domain. So unfortunately, I understand that a lot of people have a very bad opinion of postmodernity, also because they have forgotten what it actually means. Stanley Fish was very clear in a very nice article where, and I finish now, uh, where he entitled uh, the greatest um, transparency, okay? So basically believing in objectivity, it's the greatest fake news there is. Uh, transparency should be basically what, what newspapers don't tell us because they have a, a particular uh, policy, a particular agenda. On the contrary, facts rest because we have an agenda that can sustain them. David, can you um, perhaps address, if, the researcher does seem to suggest that although we disapprove of lying, we do it a lot. Um, and perhaps we do it in ways that are not uh, monumental in our social interactions. But still, if we, you know, if we believe that we should tell the truth, why do we find it so hard? The example that springs to mind, um, uh, partially because it was in in the rubric, is the conversation that a couple of people are having. And somebody says, did you read this book? Uh, it's really interesting. And the person who hasn't read this book says, yes, I did. Um, and there's a number of reasons why they might why they might do it. Now, what I'd say about that is, it is a singularly unuseful thing to do, is to make that lie. It doesn't really work from anybody's perspective, other than if, if the idea is to kind of big yourself up. In other words, if the other person's uh, judgment of you is so shallow that it is incredibly affected by whether or not you've read that book, and your own perception of your own self is so weak that it's affected by the need to, to dissimulate about whether you had. Actually, among the most positive uh, discussion in that situation comes when people tell the truth about what they've read and what they haven't and what they've experienced uh, and what they haven't, because then real learning can happen. And otherwise, real learning can't happen uh, or can't happen uh, anything like so well. So that would be an example where people tend to lie all the time. And one of the things that I, I mean, and not because I'm a virtuous person, but I just decided, because I, I could see how easy it was to do this, I just thought, well, it's much more interesting to say, always under those circumstances, no, I haven't read a word of that. Tell me about it. <laughs> Explain it to me. And actually, for me, that's worked far better. I've learned far more as a result of doing that. And then, then I've gone sometimes to those books or those things that they uh, they give. And I think this is true in so many situations. In fact, almost the only exceptions I can think of in that kind of noble cause of lying wouldn't be the vaccine example that Santiago would give you, but would be typically the things where you feel um, a, a positive need to kind of shield from or uh, somebody 
somebody from something or the need to stage the information that they get in a particular way. And by and large, I would only do that with children or with relatives whose emotional fragility depends on your capacity to help manage them. And even that is an incredible, you know, can be, if you apply to adults, can be a very kind of patronizing and a de-educative de-educative process. So by and large, I am stuck on the idea that where we can make an agreement about what a relatively objective truth is. I mean, to take the distinction, for example, that sometimes gets made, I mean, the famous example of the row about postmodernism happens about the Holocaust. Um, You say this is just um, a a narrative. I say this thing happened, you therefore are, are weak. Well, of course, if you use the word Holocaust, then in that case, it's an interpretation and narrative. If I say that up to 6 million people were murdered in extermination camps through disease, um, through Einsatzgruppen, etc., those, to me, are a series of truths which are, um, which are reachable and so on, and to deny them is, um, it, 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 it is, is a terrible act. It's a terrible act of uh, closing the door on our, our learned experience. Which takes us back to the, if you like, the, the kind of political domain where it seems to me that one of the difficulties we have is, as well as, as well as not sharing the same view of history, even of events such as the Holocaust, we have we have politicians who have weaponized the untruth uh, for political purposes, uh, which is, I guess, a step further, but. But just pulling back from that for a minute, is it perhaps, um, given that in our social interactions, we we are not as honest as we like to think we are, for sometimes for good motives, sometimes for bad motives, should we be surprised? Is it hypocritical to demand that politicians um, tell the truth? Should we not accept that in, in a situation in which they're trying to win our favor or convince us of their virtue, that this would be pretty much to be expected, David. Okay, so let's take an example from this week, and I'll be quick because I've just had a, a, a longer a example from this week. Um, a couple of Conservative politicians were making the claim that actually Britain, if you looked at it properly, had taken more refugees than any other Western European country, uh, and so on, ha, ha, had resettled more. Um, uh, 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 the BBC programme, more or less, which examines statistics, looked at this claim. And it was true if all you did was look at one resettlement programme, that was true. But actually, since that resettlement programme only dealt with 6% of uh, refugees, if you were using it to suggest that Britain had a very high reputation uh, record of taking refugees, it was entirely wrong. Now, if the politician didn't know that, then that wasn't misleading and it wasn't an untruth. But if the politician did know that and then didn't say it, that politician was very deliberately trying to mislead all the listeners and all the people who heard them about what the reality of the position was. Now, I'm just hoping we could agree that if he did the first thing, then he was ignorant and he should learn from the BBC programme and he now correct it. And if he did the second thing, then he's rather disreputable and he's trying to pull the wool over our eyes and we might do better with somebody else. Is being economical with the truth in that, in that example that David has just described, Arthur, is that the same as lying? 
Well, it depends. I mean, if you're, again, if you're ignorant, you're not lying because lying is saying what you believe to be false, right? So if you're, uh, if you're being selective, shall we say. If you're being selective, that's, that's certainly deceptive, um, whether you call it a lie or not. Uh, like I said before, spin is slightly different from, from lying because it can involve saying true things. And you can be deceptive saying true things either by cherry picking the facts that fit the particular narrative you want to uh, communicate or taking it out of context like this example which is a very good example of how political uh, deception often happens same thing when speaking of Bruno Latour before who actually has turned under the gallow as far as I can see because he uh, is now does believe in truth and facts because he's very worried that climate deniers have picked up the postmodernist discourse um, uh, what climate deniers do is often exactly what uh, David was talking about. That they take things out of context. So they, there's a graph of temperature or carbon dioxide, whatever you have. And you cut out a little piece of that graph and you put that up and you say, look, nothing has changed, whatever. It's very easy to be deceptive without saying what's false. And that makes this whole thing so much more complicated. And we have to be aware of that. I do want to add also that's important that we're talking about truth and public discourse, that we are clear that truth is a property of factual statements. And not everything we say is a factual statement. We should be very clear on that. So uh, when we speak about values, uh, for example, we say that um, you know, equality is more important than freedom. That's a value statement. And it's not necessarily the case that such a statement is true or false. So we should separate those because in public discourse and in democracy, both, uh, we disagree both on values and on facts. And when it comes to disagreement on values, it's much more tricky to sort it out. And it's not even clear that there is such a thing as truth there. Where it comes to disagreement in facts, we can sort it out if we look to evidence and arguments and are open-minded. Uh, and these kinds of disagreements do tend to sort themselves out over time. Um, so it's very important not to get them messed up, the, the disagreement about values and the disagreement about facts. And one thing that's going on now, and that's very much part of the sort of right-wing populist strategy, is to make factual disagreements into value disagreements to give the uh, feeling that, well, if you accept those facts, you're not with us, you're with them. And I think that's something we really have to, to, to prevent. And one important first step there is to be very clear on the difference between factual statements and value statements and where truth is to be found or not. But are we uh, applying a, a higher standard to politicians than we are to ordinary people in this? And isn't that a little hypocritical of us? No, we should do that because they have a different standing, right? You have power as a politician. You have huge power. You manipulate, you influence people uh, and thereby society. And it has consequences. So, of course, we should hold them to a higher standard. We should hold researchers to a higher standard because the research, research, uh, cheating in your research is very damaging, both because it damages the profession, but also because people will listen to it. Say on the coronavirus, there's been some cheating going on there around research. It can be extremely damaging. People go out thinking, well, this will actually help cure. In fact, it doesn't, and so on. So it's extreme. We should hold people that have certain agents in society that, that have power around truth to a higher standard, yes. But Santiago, the, the consequences of lying don't seem to be very severe in, in, in terms of you know, public retribution on politicians. So why should politicians feel constrained to tell the truth or, or, to, or to be um, more honest than most of them, I suspect, are in their discourse? 
-hmm. Well, of course, we should request demand from politicians to tell us the truth. And by truth, I mean, give us many arguments. Well, you may, you may say we should, but we don't. We don't punish them if they don't. Actually, I agree with you. And let's let's take the example of uh, whistleblowers, uh, Assange, uh, Snowden, Willie, and so many others that are not mentioned. But it's curious that even though we seen the truth that they revealed to us, very little had changed. So, and as you've seen, uh, both in the United States and England, and in the elections coming up now, we're probably going to have the same problem even though we, some facts and some clear indications of what has taken place in the past have been revealed to us, even though we had the truth, it's still going on. So uh, the example with the whistleblowers should, should be a good example for everybody to remember that, well, truth has limits. It's, it is not that I give you the facts of climate change and you would be, I give you the facts and you would all be now environmentalists. Unfortunately, it's not so simple. Even someone like Naomi Klein, in her book, This Time We Went Too Far, explains this. Uh, she explains how in big scientists uh, have some have even given up about uh, giving, simply giving a scientific explanation to the, to the public because it is not that it's wrong, it is right, but it, it's just not enough. Uh, this should give also an idea, for example, why does uh, someone that I admire like Greta Thunberg have so much uh, success, right? So a lot of us listen to her, much more than, for example, of uh, scientists that may be Hansen, for example. So what that, the reason for that is because the question of truth has also has a lot to do with the question of the degree of the intensity with which we give it. Uh, this is why um, I would never, uh, all, everything, all the facts we discussed today, I would never, I would not say none of them are not true. On the contrary, they are true and we can discuss them, but they are true and, and in order to make sure that they, they remain true, in particular the historical ones, we need, we need to continue telling their story, in other words, their history or the explanation. In other words, for example, uh, Hans Gerd Gadamer, a great philosopher of the 19th uh, last century, he explained, uh, he, he gave, he, in order to explain this, he, he gave the example of a classic. What is a classic like uh, Picasso or Shakespeare? Well, a classic is a classic because of its consequences, because it continues to speak to us. In other words, we continue to respond to it by writing books about them, by making comparison, etc. So that's how facts stay, stay alive in some way. This does not mean uh, negating or trying to cancel any historical facts. It has nothing to do with it. Okay, but, but nevertheless, we seem, to, we seem to agree that we're, we have reached a position in the political realm um, where the consequences of lying are if not nothing, they're much, much less than they were. And there are no consequences because of this, as you've explained, this position in which uh, truth is, has become tribal in some way. It's a, it's a mark of identity. Uh, can I just say, can I say yeah. you're right about the consequences, but we agree, don't we, that it matters. I know, I absolutely take that point. But, but I, I also want to ask you whether this acceptance in the political realm is spilling over into, into everyday life. After all, if, if our leaders lie, why shouldn't we, David? I honestly think it is a very, very bad excuse for our own behaviour to look at the failings of others and to say that licences us. Um, uh, this is not a judgment I make about what people will do. It's a judgment I would make uh, uh, in making a judgment about another person or indeed about myself, whether I thought that they were virtuous uh, or not. And of course, the problem that you're pointing to is perhaps it doesn't matter whether I think they're virtuous or not. 
Uh, it has no consequences in the practical world for them, adverse consequences for them. Um, I, would still, I would still stick to a kind of rather more hopeful notion of uh, human nature, which is we do have a bit of a bending towards the truth. When you look at what people say about why they like a book or why they like um, a, a, a drama or why they like a particular thing, quite often they will cite the idea that it is true. It speaks to something which they think is real uh, and, and says something true about the world, not something f false about the world. That they will put into the world of something like fantasy and say, that's different, that's in a kind of, that's in a kind of different place. So I'm not sure, actually, that human beings, beings do bend towards falsity. After all, falsity doesn't really help us. It wouldn't help us evolutionary, and it doesn't, and there are all kinds of other ways, and it really, which it really doesn't help us. If we could... Uh, truth, if we think the truth, however we define it, is pretty fundamental to trust. In other words, we need to be told the truth in order to be able to trust somebody. And if we think trust is fundamental to being able to have decent human societies and human societies, truth is like to be a fairly important ingredient for most of us of what we want life to be like. Sure, but haven't we rather turned that on its head in, in recent days? After all, um, lying has got people into power. Lying and confusion and the destruction of trust is sort of helping um, people to stay in power. So don't you think this is this is a wider pollution, if you like, which comes from the misuse of of uh, of falsehood in in political life, which which was bound to affect society. Yeah, I, I think there is a wider pollution going on. I, I do basically agree that fundamentally truth has such a great value for us, instrumental value, that we will never ditch it completely. <laughs> because if I want to cure a disease, I need, to, I need a theory which is correct about what cures that disease and so on. If I want food, I need a true belief about where there is food. So fundamentally, that's absolutely right. But I do believe there's a pollution of public discourse, maybe not just because of the, the relation with truth, the lying, the deception, although that's bad too. But I think, again, I think that the, the poor quality of public debate filled with hatred and threats and, um, and skewed arguments and uh, rhetoric and all of that, I think that pollutes public discourse in terrible ways. And I think the corona crisis has been a very interesting example of that. There are some things here that we desperately need to know. Uh, and we need public debate to get clear on these facts. And yet we have a situation where, well, experts disagree. In Sweden, we've had some pretty ugly expert disagreement where people are throwing personal insults among experts, that's really bad. But also outside the expert debates uh, among politicians and journalists and people in general, it's gotten very polarized and very heated. And that's the kind of situation where you don't have, so the point of free speech and all of that, going back to John Stuart Mill, is the idea that you have this public debate so that together we can come uh, to get knowledge, we can get the truth. Uh, because he says truth has collide with the force to get to, to, to it. Um, and I think that only functions if the market is not <laughs> disrupted by threats of this different kinds uh, uh, and rhetoric. And we are in a very bad situation there. And that's not just because of Trump, of course, that's because of social media, which is so driven by emotions rather than reason. Uh, so I think it's pretty bad. Santiago, we're seeing the, um, the effects of if you like, uh, the subjective approach to truth 
taken to extremes in our public discourse. So wild conspiracy theories forming the basis of new group identities, uh, including those related to very current events like the coronavirus. We've seen attack on 5G towers, we've seen all manner of irrational behaviors which are grouped around a kind of um, identity constructed on falsehood. But uh, is this dystopia? Is there any way back from this? I totally agree with this idea that, well, we have a serious problem of debate, of public debate. Uh, but, but if we agree that we have a problem of public debate, then we agree that, well, we need more interpretation, that we have, we're not having good interpretations, uh, we're not having a serious conversation about it. This is the idea, because otherwise, let's put it this way, let's make it this other example that um, you might like. Uh, let's imagine that if uh, objective truths, um, if there actually were objective truths to the laws of economics, for example, that means that democracy would be useless. We should be simply be in the hands of technocrats, right? Therefore, we should just keep it since economic is a scientific, a rational science and there is truth, they will tell us precisely what we should do. And in, even those of us who do not leave the European Union are not happy with technocrats. So uh, this is the idea. I do, I do think it's very important that the fact that now social media has basically destroyed uh, established newspapers, established programs like the BBC uh, you mentioned before. Well, that's the issue. The problem is that now we have very few tools in order to construct a serious debate about this truth that we're supposed to be sustaining. Uh, this is the way uh, also someone like Bruno Latour sees it, okay? Okay, I say, I know you want to come back. I really do because it's a key point. In a democracy, experts tell you about the means, not the goals. The goals are set by the uh, citizens voting for politicians. Say you have a politician who argue that we need to lower unemployment. That's our primary goal. And you vote for this person. That's, that's up to the public to decide what the goals will be. The experts in a democracy will then be necessary to, in order to tell politicians about how to get those goals uh, achieved. And it, that's the, the idea that in a democracy, the experts set the goal. That's not right. In a demo, that's an epistocracy where the experts set the goals and the means. And that's not how democracy works. And the idea that uh, there's something that. problematic with having experts in a democracy mis mixes those things up. And it's very dangerous to throw out the experts because you cannot achieve your goals without expertise knowledge. Thank you to uh, a wonderful panel for a wonderful debate. Asa, Santiago and David, you've been great. Huge thank you again uh, to my panel. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Times. Remember to like, subscribe and review wherever you listen. And tune in next week for more big ideas from the world's leading thinkers.